Hello there, and welcome to the Parenthesis Podcast, Members Edition. This is Members Episode 1, Colonial History of Virginia, Part 1. The first thing I want to do is just thank you so much for supporting the TPP. It means a lot, and support like yours will ensure I will be able to continue making the podcast and continue to give you quality episodes. If you do enjoy this membership, please tell a friend about the show, and please, I recommend you to tell them about the extra membership perks. If we get more people, the more extra episodes we have, and the better the show will be. Now with that out of the way, you've already paid. Just sit back and enjoy some exclusive The Presidency Podcast content. When we think about the British Empire, we come to think of two things. The first one is England, obviously. The second one is colonization. We are painted with a pretty uniform picture of a colonial empire with far-reaching, vast overseas holdings. From Canada to India, the English colonial empire truly wraps around the world. You can jump from colony to colony from the east coast of the Pacific and find yourself traveling around the world, and eventually you end up right where you started. For those unfamiliar with American history, it might actually come as a shock to you that the English were pretty late to the colonial game, and definitely in regard to North America. Much of this colonial hesitancy was due to the power that Spain actually projected on the water at the time. The Pacific Ocean was Spain's. Spain and Portugal were established colonial powers for around a century by the time that England established its first real sustainable colony in America. It actually was until the reign of Queen Elizabeth I that the English became involved in the New World. As I said earlier, the Spanish were a big reason why the English shuffled their feet across the Atlantic. However, there were a few other reasons why English colonization was postponed. Prior to their overseas colonization efforts, the English were having their fair share of internal religious discontent. This discontent was sown in the aftermath of the English Reformation in 1529. Three loose religious factions formed. There was the Catholic faction, who obviously, you know, wanted to keep the church in England loyal to the papacy. There was a faction that enjoyed the reforms made by Henry VIII and his regime. You know, the guy who killed all of his wives. And these reforms kept much of the existing Catholic aspects of the church, but took some ideas of the Protestantism in the continent. Going forward, I will refer to this group as the Episcopals meaning, you know, they have bishops and stuff. But in a broader term, they are also known as the Church of England or the Anglican Church. This is an important group to remember, as many early presidents were Episcopalians, such as Washington and Madison. The last group that I will discuss thought that the break with the Catholic Church that the Episcopals did was not complete. They thought that the Episcopal's services reeked of papacy, this group sought to purify the faith. This is that famous group you know and love as the Puritans. These guys will become much more important later when I discuss the history of New England. If this helps, I had a teacher summarize the Puritans basically as the fear that someone, somewhere, is having fun. So that basically gives you an idea of them if you are unsure. Moving back to our dreary, rainy archipelago, we have three main groups, the Catholics, the Episcopals, and the Puritans. They all lived in a country made of theological dynamite. 
This dispute over religion helped sidestep any real concentration over overseas colonization. This brings me to my third and final reason to why English overseas colonization was so far behind their Western European neighbors. And I am sure some particularly astute listeners may have already caught on to something that I've been saying. I keep referring to the lateness of English overseas colonization, particularly referring to the New World across the Atlantic Ocean. However, America was not where England first stepped with their colonial boot. In fact, many scholars often described Ireland as the first place that the English truly colonized. This is the first foreign land where they established plantations, such a common site in the New World. So much of their time during the Age of Exploration was spent subjugating those pesky Irish. Before the English's foray into the New World, they spent much of their time trying to subdue the Irish and bring them into their domain. They supplanted much of the Irish gentry with that of the English and made great strides to remove Catholicism from the Emerald Isle. I will not get into too much detail of the centuries of Anglo-Irish conflicts, but let's just say England was extracting resources from Ireland, which in turn was giving the Irish a real rough time. The local Irish were viewed more as the colonized rather than equal members of the greater English domain, such as the Welsh, Cornish, and later Scots. Finally, able to overcome these eternal issues enough to set their eyes overseas, the English just needed to get past one obstacle. And that obstacle was, of course, the Spanish. Spain and England, once natural allies, had become rivals in the last hundred years or so. This mostly began when England left the Catholic fold and went down their own path. While if that wasn't bad enough for a staunchly Catholic Spain, Henry VIII's first wife, whom he left the church in order to divorce, was in fact a Spanish princess. So naturally, the Spain weren't exactly on speaking terms with their newly theoretical English neighbors. Due to this relationship, the Spanish were not really keen on letting their new enemy into the literal treasure trove that was the New World. This led to many skirmishes, which usually ended with Spanish victories, the only silver lining for the English being the great Sir Francis Drake. After a few raids on Spanish ships and a short non-aggression treaty, a small window opened up for potential English settlement in the New World. This led to two individuals to set off the, to the New World. The two adventurers were Sir Humphrey Gilbert and his half-brother, the Sir Walter Raleigh. Both of them had prior experience setting up plantations in Ireland, and they were in good favor with Queen Elizabeth I. She granted the duo a charter for six years that would give them the right to, quote, to inhabit and possess, at his choice, all remote and heathen lands not in the actual possession of any Christian prince, unquote. So right away, in this section of the charter, we can see two things. One, that English were aware that there were local peoples that inhabited the New World that were different from them. And two, that many Christian kingdoms already have laid claim to many places in the New World. This is important because we will see just how scared of the Spanish the English really were at the time, and how the French become a major obstacle in future English colonial progression. While it seemed that the power of the Spanish was waning, 
The thought of a direct conflict with the Iberian crown was still worrisome and still on everyone's mind. The two set off and Sir Gilbert founded Newfoundland in 1583. This was the first colonial settlement in North America by the English. After Newfoundland was established, they set off down the coast looking for an ideal spot to stop and build a military outpost. However, he was unfortunately caught in a shipwreck and he drowned. This left Sir Walter Raleigh alone on the expedition. After mourning the loss of his half-brother, he pressed on. Raleigh returned to the Queen upon discovery of a suitable island and requested permission to establish a settlement. Elizabeth granted him permission, but did not agree to fund the colony. Eventually, he was able to receive some private funding and hired his cousin, Sir Richard Grenville, to transport the settlers to the island. All the settlers brought over on this trip were men. So yeah, I'm sure that's not going to start any problems. Grenville loaded the men and took them across the Atlantic. He unloaded them and looked back to head to England. However, right before he departed for the Metropole, he sacked a neighboring Indian village. And with that friendly neighborhood introduction, we get into the story of the colony of Roanoke. Before we get into the riveting story of the first English colony in what would become the United States, we should first discuss a few items that need to be addressed. First, I will be using the term Indian, American Indian, or Indigenous Peoples to describe people that lived in North America prior to colonization. While this is not a perfect term, it is one, in my experience, most used in the modern historical convention. It should be noted that it is not universally accepted, as many factions believe the use of Native American or Indigenous American is a better term to use. I'm accepting those terms as potential uses, and I believe, and like I said prior, that the term American Indian slash Indian is not perfect, but it will be what I use for the podcast as it best stylistically flows. Additionally, there will be some other terms that come up that will be explained as we go. For instance, in the main podcast and the members podcast, I use the word metropole a lot, such as in the previous paragraph. A metropole in the context of the colonial era refers simply to the host country where the colony is derived from. For instance, Virginia's metropole is England. Roanoke. That name sparks mystery within the American psyche. As a child in the United States sitting in history class, we are told the story and left to wonder what truly happened. I recall how briefly we actually discussed it, as it was mostly used as a setup for the understanding of the Jamestown colony. However, as a kid, I was always stuck on the event, pondering what really happened to the members of the lost colony. The mystery began in 1587 with Raleigh's second attempt at colonizing Roanoke. His first attempt in 1585, the one discussed prior with Sir Grenville, was short-lived. The colonists decided to abandon their first project after their supplies accompanied by Sir Francis Drake arrived late and instead opting to depart with Drake back towards England. I mean, I don't blame them. Can you imagine being left alone waiting for supplies while you try to survive on the edge of an unexplored and uncharted continent? From their island colony, the mid-Atlantic forest must have given them nightmares. The stories about the natives a people who have never heard about firearms, let alone your god. It must have been terrifying. 
Every rustle in the woods while collecting supplies must have made the settlers want to beeline it right back to base camp. This time, a man named John White was in charge of the colonial expedition. He was accompanied by 90 other men, and in an English colonial first, he brought women along. The total being 17 women. So think about that. 90 men and 17 women. That is just like The Bachelor, but way crazier. You must be at home listening to this episode saying like, Hey, 17 women and 90 men, that just doesn't add up. Looks like 73 men are going to be very disgruntled. Well, to you, I'll say before only men were brought into the colonial ventures, so this small number of women was actually an improvement. Not only that, but it signaled a real attempt at permanence. Just after landing on the island and continuing the project from the last expedition, White's daughter gave birth to a daughter. This baby girl became the first New World child with English parents. Her name was Virginia Dare, named after Queen Elizabeth I, the Virgin Queen, which is also where we get the name Virginia. After the Roanoke colony started and got running, White decided it was time for him to head back to good old England to acquire more supplies and gather more settlers. This was around the time of 1588, and if especially astute listeners have noticed, 1588 was a year of the Spanish Armada, which was one of the major climaxes in the Anglo-Spanish War, and where people like Sir Francis Drake really etched his name in the history books and became a legend. This, however, was very unfortunate for James White, and in turn, the members of the colony of Roanoke, as this was a time of conflict, and the vast threat of the Spanish Armada required that all able-bodied men and, that's right, able-bodied ships were needed to repel the invasion. While this is very interesting history, I do not want to delve too deep into the Spanish Armada, but perhaps this would be a suitable additional members episode where I can discuss the Spanish invasion and the Anglo-Spanish War in greater details. I can examine the cause and the outcomes and how it affected the Western world. So if you are interested in that, let me know. Reach out to me, and maybe we can greenlight that. Anyway, while this was preoccupying White, obviously as he had to help repel the Spanish Armada, the colonists were left to wonder when White was going to return. Was he going to return? If you think about it, the colonists are completely cut off from Europe. Zero communication whatsoever. They had no way of even knowing the Spanish Armada existed. So when over a year passed without a word from England the colonists would have most likely felt abandoned by their metropole. The island of Roanoke itself was in quite the precarious location for a colony. It was no doubt chosen because its location had a lack of visibility from the Atlantic. It was surrounded by barrier islands and was tucked back away from clearer waterways. So if a Spanish ship would happen upon the island, it would have been directly looking for it knowing exactly where it was, impossible to see from the greater Atlantic. It was surrounded by fairly shallow water, with sand berms and long sand banks surrounding it. They were like coarse tan barricades protecting the small emerald isle. However, the geographical security blanket in which the colonists were able to hide under also likely would lead to their demise. 
The difficult terrain that surrounded the island was also a hindrance to supplies from the English mainland. This too made it difficult for the English ships if they would reach them for supplies. And when supplies came, they would trickle in if they arrived at all. The soil of the island itself was also quite inhospitable, as it was extremely sandy and did not produce the necessary number of crops. So from the beginning, it seemed that the choice to begin the colony the island of Roanoke was a grave mistake. And as we will see when we come to the colony of Jamestown, the English made really bad choices on where to set the colony up. White was finally able to gain leave and returned to the colony in 1590, about two years, three, two and a half since he had last left. I'm sure he was anxious to return and see his family. When he did make it with more men and supplies, the island was clearly abandoned. It was deserted with almost no sign of inhabitants. He scoured the island in search of clues for where the colonists and his daughter could have gone. However, it was almost to a complete chagrin. And Teld was noticed by a member of the search team that on a single wooden post, a word was carved. This was the word of crow. C-R-O. It is often taught in history books growing up that it was a full word croatan, but in reality is actually just the word crow. Anyway, this word crow was taken by the white and future historians to mean croatan. And so if we think about it, it doesn't really matter what it was in there because it gave the same conclusion. Croatan was one of the neighboring American Indian tribes at the time. This was actually one of the tribes that the expedition had contact with before he departed back towards the metropole in 1587. Despite his frantic search efforts, White and his crew could not locate the missing colonists, and eventually they gave up hope and returned to England, failing to resupply the lost colony and to find his family. What happened to the settlers of Roanoke is a mystery, and it no doubt will remain one, unless there's a slew of evidence hiding waiting to be discovered. However, that is very unlikely. There are a couple of theories given by modern scholars which could explain the colonists' disappearance. The first theory is that shortly after White disembarked for England, the colonists were attacked by a neighboring American Indian village. The reasoning behind this is perhaps for retaliation for what Sir Grenville did prior to his 1585 raising of their village, which Grenville reportedly did due to minor theft. So, you know, that makes sense. Steal my shoe, I kill you all. This one is a possibility. However, it is simple speculation and it is unable to be proven. The second theory is that the settlers were having a difficult time surviving, let alone prospering on the island. Due to the three-year hiatus of Sir White, I can only imagine how they felt. They were scared. They felt abandoned desperately needing supplies. They went to the local tribes for help. They were taken in and slowly integrated with the natives, as they saw leaving their island colony behind as their only means of survival. And actually, it's pretty interesting. There are even some contemporary reports around the time of future English colonists witnessing natives who had blonde hair and blue eyes. Of the two main theories, personally, I believe that the settlers were not killed but rather they were assimilated into native society. I think that white returning would have noticed a struggle if one had transpired. I am sure an attacking Indian tribe would have done damage to the colony, and there would have been more signs of conflict. I also find it unlikely that the colonists would have taken time to carve into a tree while they were being attacked. 
Nevertheless, it remains a mystery, and as I previously stated, it will most likely never change. Even though the colony of Roanoke was a colossal failure, the land of Virginia was still there, seemingly patiently waiting for an English return. But we will have to get to that return next time on Colonial History of Virginia Part 2. I really appreciate you becoming a member and supporting the show. I hope you enjoyed this part one of my exclusive member series on Virginian colonial history so far. If you have any comments or concerns, please email me at presidencypodcast at gmail.com. Also, feel free to follow me on Twitter at ThePresPod. Finally, if you did enjoy this exclusive content, please not only recommend the main podcast, but membership as well. Recommend the podcast to your friends or anyone else who you think would be interested in the show. Word of mouth, I feel, is the best way to grow a podcast. A majority of the new podcasts that I start listening to usually come as recommendations from friends. So, please tell others about the Presidency Podcast. And with that, hail to the Chief. 